Does anyone have an unpopular opinion? Dave, have you got one, please? Do I have an unpopular opinion? Well, <laughs> I've given you 11. <laughs> <laughs> Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Do not underestimate the power of the independent open cloud for developers. Yes, I'm talking about Linode. Linode is our cloud of choice and it's the home of changelog.com. What we love most about Linode is their independence and their commitment to open cloud. Open cloud means being unencumbered by outside investment and maximizing value for the community, not shareholders. And that's exactly what Linode represents. No vendor lock-in, open at every layer. If you want to learn more, head to linode.com slash open. Again, linode.com slash open. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. If this is your first listen, be sure to subscribe at changelog.com slash go time or your favorite podcast directory. Next week's episode is all about working from home, a topic that is on our minds here at Changelog and likely relevant to you as well. Subscribe to be notified when it drops. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya. Today we're talking about the Zen of Go. On today's show we have Johnny Borsico, Carmen Ando, and the one and only Dave Cheney. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, Hello friends. How's it going, Dave? Oh, it's going well. How, how's everybody doing in Radioland? Yeah, not bad. Carmen, it's been a while since you've been on, actually, hasn't it? I know. I've missed you all. It's nice to be back. Yeah, we've missed you. I was about to say that. Dave is fave. I didn't come back for you. I came back for Dave. Sorry. <laughs> None taken. None taken. Johnny, how are you, mate? Oh, uh, I'm doing well. Not too Good. bad. What's been going on? Uh, you know, not much. Just uh, cracking on. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just trying to be nice to everybody. Uh, unlike you, I oh, think. That's hard is work. It, yeah. Yeah. It's too hard. From what you've t- told me. Yeah. It's, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so this show then is called the zen of go and dave i wonder if you could just kick us off and tell us what does that actually mean where, where does this come from okay well first things first i have to give credit where credit is due in fact and, and the, the ideas for the zen of go came from many places including here in go time uh, when we were, i think the last time when I spoke, um, when we we're talking about try, one of the things that um, Peter Bergon said, and, and maybe he was just for him, it was just a throwaway comment. But for me, like I really grabbed on and latched to it was uh, when he was talking about error handling should be explicit. And he said, this should be a core value of the language. We should write it down. We should make this explicit. And so that was one of the ideas. And um, some of the other ideas in some of the other extended discussion uh, about try, and this isn't all about error handling, was um, Danielle Petruzlak said, you know, like other languages have core values, and she kind of pointed to the Zen of Python. Um, and so that was like what had kind of got me percolating for a year. And then a couple of months ago, I was lucky enough to be invited to go to the second GopherCon in Israel. Mm. 
and they said, you have an hour? And I was thinking, well, what have I got that would, that would fill an hour? And so um, very much the talk that came out of it and the ideas that came out of it are kind of an hour's worth of worth of ideas. So as well as re- recognizing these are really kind of not my ideas, these are just kind of things that I've pulled together. I also need to apologize for everyone having to read an hour's worth of text. Um, <laughs> that, that's the reason why that, that document is so long, because like if they'd give me 30 minutes, it would have been much shorter. <laughs> That's great. There is a kind of mini site, though, isn't there, as well, where you've, you've written out kind of a set of these rules uh, or these points. How can we find that? At the bottom, it's uh, also, I guess we put it in, in some show notes, but it's the zenofgo.netlify.com. The main reason I do that, and this is perhaps a little kind of presentation inside Judo, is when I'm uh, giving feedback to people with their presentations, I always say, look, I have a superpower. I can control what people in the audience are thinking. And the way that I do that is I put the words really big behind me. So if I want them to think something, I write those words. Like if I want a very important thing out of a a sentence or a paragraph to be the key message, I put that behind me in a million point font. Dave, I'm going to write this down. I've been doing my talks wrong for sure. Total Jedi mind trick right there. (laughs) Also, if if you want people to quote you well on Twitter, like with a photo, make sure that the words that you want them to repeat are behind you. Mm. Oh, it's <laughs> a good idea. I tried that, but it was a Dave Cheney quote. So the picture is of me and a Dave Cheney <laughs> quote behind me. Just yeah. sorry. I, I do that sometimes. And then there's not enough space to fit the credit on. So I just take that off. <laughs> and just take credit yourself. Sounds wow. It's default, isn't it? I can't help it. That's the default value of that. <laughs> I, you know, even the, the zen of go.netlify.com or the dash zen dash up dash go. I, I actually quite like the blog post better because I don't mind reading an hour's worth of text. I found it quite enjoyable, all of it. It's more contextual, yeah. yeah. Mm. So part of it was like to have something snappy to take away. Like, like, like one thing you always do in marketing on a trade show is make sure you give somebody something with your name on it. So when it's on their desk, they look down, they're like, oh, I remember that. So part part of the part of the little mini site was a a thing to give to the audience to take away, mm. and there's always a tension between like a six thousand word blog post and people who people who don't have the time to read the whole whole way through. So I think there's kind of a notion of giving them like something more concise. Again, to like give props to all the inspirations. Rob Pike's um, Go Proverbs was another big inspiration there, and, and maybe we'll get into this later. I have this notion that the proverbs are kind of like advanced level. Maybe, um, because kind of part part of the idea of like proverbs in, in, in both the way that Pike said them and um, the original game of Go inspired ones was that they were kind of like these little kind of whimsical observations, which kind of makes sense when you're like, oh, now I understand the carpenter square makes Co. But is that really useful for someone who's never seen the game before? So. That's why each of them comes with at least a little a little paragraph to describe them because ideally, it's kind of my take on it, that they should be usable, especially by novices, because this kind of comes back to my whole kind of rant about idiomatic Go actually being quite an exclusive exclusionary term. So yeah. I didn't want them to be kind of vague in that way that you could you know, have, have, have a long stand-up argument about it in the way that the Zen of Python is actually a... It quite kind of it's it's it was it was a thought device to kind of prompt people into in the Python community to really say, well, hang on, that doesn't seem to be how I'm actually writing Python. Tim Peters yeah. was obviously being like, ha ha, that's the trick. 
Yeah, you're right. The titles of, of each little point are quite poetic. So it does leave a lot of room for interpretation. You know, they aren't code, are they? Um, So, yeah, I think I appreciate that. And it's a good point to make. And I think I've seen this actually happen where someone will give a talk and they'll kind of skip over some of the fundamentals just to kind of get to the higher level ideas. And then somebody that perhaps didn't have those fundamentals, their experience of it is then very different. And I've seen that happen a couple of times. So I think that is a thing that we have to look out for. But the little descriptions on the site, I think, for sure help that. So to give some background, like in a growing community, like in Go's growing community, which we all hope it is, most of the people joining this in this community will have joined recently. We know like this is kind of kind of makes sense mathematically. It also kind of makes sense anecdotally. Like if you if you think of all the conferences you go to, you, like as the MC or someone, you might do a do a show of hands of like who's been here a long time, who's be, who's their first time here. The majority of the people at conferences at meetups uh, are newcomers, so. We should optimize for the newcomer rather than over-focusing on the old hands who've been been here a long time. Yeah, I think that's a nice decision if you have to make that decision because the thing about the people with more experience is they have more experience. And so they are more kind of equipped to be able to find the right information and things like this. I do feel like whenever I give a talk, I always try and give it to someone that's new. I always want to make sure they're at least covered um, that's why sometimes, even on this show, I sound like an idiot. Um, it's not because I am one. It's because I'm being nice. Well, you mentioned new. And I think one of the beautiful phrases for making sure that you have that uh, perspective is Zen mind, beginner mind, which is what I, why I love the title of your, your talk and of the blog. And so when uh, someone has never heard of, well, what is Zen mind, beginner mind? It says, you know, in the beginner's mind, the options are many. In the master's mind, the options are few. And so sometimes the proverbs that Rob has, the brevity and the wit comes from layers and layers and layers of meaning. And so when you get it, that is the delight of those proverbs. But it also is exclusionary to those who haven't yet gotten there. So I'm glad that you did this and made it more explicit. So I'd like to perhaps briefly touch on sort of the, the fact that you consider sort of uh, the term idiomatic, right, go to be exclusionary in, in some way. I kind of take a slightly different view of it in a sense that I think it's an aspirational goal almost, right? So when you join a community, there is going to be an idiomatic way of writing it, be it, you know, go Rust or Ruby or whatever, right? So like you want to fit in, right, in a way and to write the, you know, programs like most others are doing, at least in the, the correct way most others are doing. So to me, it's sort of a, it's, it's an aspirational, less so an exclusionary term but i can definitely see where where you're coming from when you say that to me when i when when i juxtapose the go proverbs and the the zen of go i see sort of the zen of go something that you understand and sort of take to heart on your way to the go proverbs right once you reach the go proverbs you're like oh okay now so much starts to make sense because you've been working with go for a little while you you sort of uh, understand sort of the layered meaning in the proverbs the zen of go is more explicit it's more it's deliberately sort of a, a an ex- explanation right of how you should approach um sort of a your your go work so i see them i see sort of idiomatic writing idiomatic go as sort of the aspirational something that everybody should be striving to do not necessarily sort of a um, shutting the door on folks who don't quite know how to do it or whether they know if if they're sort of you know if they're doing it right yeah i I think you you touched on my key kind of uncomfortableness with the uh, this idea of idiomatic go it is not that we shouldn't be 
writing code in the idiomatic style, but actually the word idiom itself. Like I, I went to the dictionary and, the, and the, the definition of idiom is the way that we do things around here. It's, it's really the accepted norm. And in any kind of uh, uh, culture that has that, you know, this is the way that we do things around there, it can be groupthink. We write code like this because we write code like this. Now, the reason that I, I said idiomatic code can be exclusionary is not the ideas of, you know, we, sh we should write good, good code code in the style that we've all become accustomed to. It's the way that, that that's actually administered. Scott Myers, the C++, effective C++ author, has this amazing post, uh, amazing blog post on writing effective C++ books. He's, uh, you know, he totally, totally breaks the fourth wall about how you, you went about writing the effective C++ books. And the thing that I took away from that is... Well, first of all, avoid absolutes. Like, like you have titles, like you shouldn't say always and never, say prefer or avoid. So first of all, moving away from absolutist language is, is important there. And the second one was that in my observations, and I, I really want to ask the, the rest of the group how, how they, they perceive it, most of the times when the word idiomatic go has been used, it is usually with a negation in front of it. That's not idiomatic. Mm. You did that. You did that wrong. And that's the key thing which I'm concerned about Idiomatic Go as a teaching tool. Good point. Does that seem fair? Like, like when you've seen Idiomatic Go used as a justification or as a, a goal, I've generally found it kind of, it's very close on the page with words that imply that the thing that the person did is not Idiomatic, it is not yeah. in the tribe, it is not following the accepted standard. They did it wrong. Yeah, it somehow encodes a, a suggestion of naivety or something, doesn't it? Somehow mm -hmm. in, exactly. in that criticism, yeah. And we don't need to do it. You can probably get a, the same ideas across without resorting to that, which kind of makes yeah. sense. I mean, sometimes, you know, I found that it's sometimes useful to follow patterns that other people are doing, even if I don't quite understand why they exist. And then I can sort of learn later. I, I find that happens too. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's sometimes I think if you expect everyone to learn everything straight away, it's such a, it is a lot to learn. I mean, we, mm. we do try and sometimes we say like, oh, it's easy or, you know, that's a mistake. It's this stuff is not easy at all. Um, in fact, it probably wouldn't interest us if it was that easy. Um, so yeah, I feel like if, if you expect people to know everything too quickly, it can really put people off. So I like, I like the idea that people can follow these ideas around, even if they don't have a full grasp of their, their sort yeah. of deep textured meaning, but can still be a good shortcut for people. To come back to your, your point, the concern I have with Idiomatic Go is that everybody is well-meaning. It's just that the way that I've generally seen it expressed in code reviews, in comments online, is it's always with that, this is, you know, the thing that you did is not idiomatic. And what, what struck me was, that feedback, that negative feedback, right at the point when the person is most excited about trying go, most interested in investing in it, most interested. So th th this whole exercise was really a question of how can we reframe that, that commentary or that feedback to be just in the positive frame so nobody has to hear, you know, don't do it like that, do it like this. And to, to go back to Maya's work, um, rather than saying, you know, never use some of the millions of obscure features in C++, make a suggestion that is, do do this. If you have a world of choices, start with this one. So that, that was really how I wanted to reframe it. Yeah, that makes sense. 
getting to the heart of what idioms are for in programming. So many ways for the code to compile, but in order for understandability to increase, in order for the code to grow well, age well, be able to be refactored, we have to layer this shared meaning on top, which is idiomatic Go. So what I'm hearing is when you say, when we use the, no, that's not idiomatic, there are certain contexts for which that might be okay if the person is already at a certain level of understanding of Go. But we should also be very explicit in saying the reason why we like idiomatic Go is because it helps us later on for X, Y, Z, right? So, and I just love that we're even talking about this because this transcends just Go to any programming language, right? I like that idea that you just brought up, which is kind of, instead of saying, oh, this this is rejected because it's not idiomatic, you could say this, uh, even if you don't say idiomatic, this is a a way to do this. And it's a sort of teaching opportunity, isn't it? Uh, which we don't always feel like we have time for, but sometimes it, it just it can be just a different way of framing what the same thing you were going to say before. And suddenly you have been able to um, kind of, it's a positive, like you say, Dave, it's a positive experience then instead of a negative one. Precisely. Like to take my favorite one, which is, you know, don't start um, problematic to not use a negation in there. When you start a go routine, always know when it will finish is a, a much better way of saying that. Imagine if you're hyperlinked that in a code in a code review. You know, like thumbs down, hyperlink to, uh, to something that says, uh, w- w- when you start a Go routine, always know when we finish, is much better than someone writing, hey, you've got a leak there. Mm. Yeah, and the, the latter is, or, or being able to describe it by saying, here are the consequences all the way through the way that the data transforms. Uh, shows a level of understanding and awareness. But I often have caught people who say that's not idiomatic go with just kind of cargo culting and not knowing why. And so <laughs> I love that if you're ready to give a constructive criticism to somebody or some feedback for let's do it this way, I would love that you, be whoever is doing that uh, feedback, be able to give uh, some time to be able to talk about why that is. And that's hard to do. And I, and I think when we are asked to do that on the spot, very few people can actually do it. So we kind of then default back to, oh, that's not idiomatic without give, have understanding why. I was going to ask you at some point, what, which one was your sort of a favorite uh, um, of, of these sayings? Um, and you, you sort of uh, mentioned that before. One thing I've noticed of the set, right? most of them, at least eight of them are very explicit. You can literally, you know, read it and you know exactly what it's telling you to do or to avoid, right? At least two of those, maybe three, uh, can be interpreted more uh, sort of uh, subjectively, right? So I'm thinking of perhaps the the most abstract one is moderation, right? Moderation is a virtue. So, and obviously in my mind, I see moderation as is a virtue as sort of the topmost sort of abstract one, the one that kind of requires a bit more um, experience, like, you know, having seen a few things to kind of know where the right, uh, what's the right amount quantity is, right? Uh, and then obviously maintainability, which, you know, different people will have different ideas of what maintainability means, right? Uh, and then uh, the third one in my mind is uh, sort of each package fulfills a single purpose, right? So again, these three, there's depending on who you're talking to, uh, the teams you're in, these things are going to mean different things to different different folks. I'm, I'm wondering, like, what is the tool that you would employ, right? Uh, especially for the first one, especially for the moderation part, right? What is a tool that you personally employ to know how far is too far or um, how much is just right? Yeah, an, an excellent question. And, and I need to give some editorial context here. Um, I, I started with the, to talk about um, public speaking. I, I'm sure everyone's been through that wave where you're like, this sounds like a great idea. 
I'm going to propose <laughs> this as, as a conference talk. And then even better, you get accepted and you're elated. You're like, this is fabulous. And then you're making some notes and you go and drink some coffee and you write in your book for a little bit. And then in about a month, you come back and you say, right, you know, time's ticking. I've got to go and write that talk. And you sit down and write it and you're like, crap, this idea is not as good as I thought it was. This isn't going to work out as well as I thought it was. I'm, <laughs> I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> this is a process that I go through every, for every talk that, that I write. Like, uh, and, and then then it's a process of like pulling yourself out and say, well, okay, what, what, you, you promised to do this talk for this uh, on this subject. You probably missed the point to, to, like, to change your topic, so you've just got to grin and bear it. From talking to other, other speakers, I think this is actually a very common thing that, that happens to everybody. So to break the fourth wall a little bit, as I got into it, I ran out of similarities I could find between the, the Zen of Python and, and, a, and a potential Zen of Go. The talk, I thought there was going to be a lot of crossover, but I actually found that I had to reinterpret what Peter's wrote quite heavily in some points. And to, towards the end of the talk, I said, look, you know, I've, I've mined as much as I can from, from this. I mean, they're fundamentally different languages, although Go is roughly 30% Python anyway, if you um, look at its <laughs> lineage. To, to, to that, some of those points are you know, worked really well with the material. Others were a bit of a stretch. Some just have no lineage at all. So to come, come here, moderation is virtue. Like there are some in there that I felt had to be said, like simplicity. We cannot talk about with Go without saying simplicity. Simplicity is, it is a core value. And if this is a list of things that Go programmers as a, as a tribe, as a group, um, hold, hold dear, simplicity has got to be in there. So no matter how kind of um, hand wavy and hard to say that the final conclusion is, you know, you've, you've got to say, is that simple? Like, like if it's not, if it's, and that, that's totally subjective. Moderation is a virtue. I thought about that one a lot. I thought about my own experiences a lot, that when I came to Go, I was very excited about the things in Go that were different from what, what are the languages I was using before, like weight concurrency, the fact that it was compiled, that was great compared to JVM languages. And so those things that were unique about Go, I wanted to use all of them. Concurrency for everything, channels for everything, you know, everything is going to be in its own Go routine. Like there's a reason these special features are in the language, so there's a reason, so therefore I should use them. Was the theory was the theory that I had, and, and again, I don't think this is uncommon. Like, like in another point, I wrote that you know, Go is reasonably performant, so people will, will use it for the things that it's for. That Go has good concurrency support, so the programs that be written in it will use concurrency heavily. So we, we, we can't deny that the things which are done well in the language will be the things that people want to use. And so there's a tension there between well, I want to use all you know this kind of novice thing of I want to use all the features. They're there for a reason you know, I, I should use them. And the realization, which I think each of us has gone through in our journey through learning Go, um, becoming proficient in, in realizing that just as in life, overuse of any one of those things just leads to code that is either hard to read, not maintainable, or fundamentally just kind of too clever for what it's doing. Um, that was certainly my experience when I went overboard with, with Go routines. Like I broke the program into tiny little pieces and then missed the bigger point that actually they were all waiting on each other. So it was fundamentally sequential, but I just made it hard to, <laughs> harder to follow. For anyone who had to, one of the first big pieces of code that I contributed to the Go project was working with Adam Langley on the SSH, um, SSH package. And that initially had channels for everything, every possible thing that like every message, like SSH is kind of a stacked protocol. So at every level they communicated through channels. Um, and again, very complicated as well as you know, tracking the ownership of those channels, closing them, all that stuff. Fundamentally missed the point that this is a stack protocol. Well, nothing happens at the higher level until something's happened at the lower level. So 
those are just function calls. <laughs> At the end of moderation is virtual. I was left with this unsatisfactory kind of thing, thing of saying, you know, do you feel that you've done the least you could? Which is really, really, really answer. Have you used the features in Go in the least? To point to maybe some guidance here, does everyone remember the um, blog post a couple of years ago called Choose Boring Technology? This is the, this idea of mm-hmm. innovation tokens. Mm-hmm. Has everyone heard of innovation tokens? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But maybe some of our listeners won't have, so maybe we could, uh, for, th- <laughs> for their benefit. <laughs> sure. We'll definitely put it in the show notes. But the idea of innovation tokens is that every time you start a new project, you bring with you all the knowledge that you have. Say you're doing a new web application. Well, you're going to pretty much start from the old web application. And maybe you'll change a few things. Like Maybe you'll be like, ooh. That database that was a that was a poor choice. So for for this, you know, I think we need a different kind of database. But in then taking on some new, some uh, something new like changing your database, you've spent one of your innovation tokens. You've taken on a big risk because that's an unknown. The main push of this huge boring technology blog post was you don't have unlimited innovation tokens. You have two, maybe three, more like one. So if you're thinking about you know trying to apply moderation as a virtue to to your Go code, say, well, this code sure does use a lot of concurrency. Maybe that's the the one innovation token. Innovation token. If you're using a lot of Go routines to um, to kind of break up this problem, then maybe we shouldn't going to think up something hypothetical. Maybe we shouldn't have a lot of complicated data structures as well. It's really about recognizing. Hmm, I've used a lot of a certain part of Go. Um, the goal is not to use all of the parts at the same time. That's kind of I've pushed my stack in on that one idea. Yeah. So it's sort of taking that minimalism. Uh, a little bit further as well into the choices that you make about stuff. It's interesting because, you know, we're at risk of that. That kind of thing is at risk of becoming one of those headlines like don't use channels, you know, that, that could easily fall into that same trap. And the thing is, I'll admit, I have overindulged on channels in the past and actually end up tying myself in such knots and sometimes very literally, not literally. And so, but that learning process I found to be probably quite valuable. So I wouldn't necessarily want to deprive anyone of that. You're dead right on a real team in a real job, in a real situation. Of course, there's limits. There's only so much you can do. And I like that idea of sort of having a uh, don't overindulge on something, you know, having a, a healthy kind of use of these things. It's kind of a nice idea. I'll give you another example um, of where something could be overused. In my first talk at Duck.go, I talked, uh, I, I wanted to talk about Rob Pike's functional option pattern and how I applied it in, in the design of some code that I was working on. Two years later, a, a number of people had said to me, um, look, I really love that talk, but I'm not sure that the other people... I can propose these ideas. Like it's too weird. Like like this idea of, of anonymous functions that, that return anonymous functions. It's too weird. And that was kind of the impetus for another talk about you know, hey, free functions are a thing we can you know we should use them. But it's a realization that that is probably like if everything in your code base is functions that function return functions that call functions. That's a really big innovation token. Mixing that with like heavy channel use and heavy go routine use. That's a pretty kind of pro level pro level move. That's you know, that would be one of those cases where you'd say, well, you seem to have used all the thing, like you, you seem to have used all the features of the language. Is that going to be a little bit hard to follow? Yeah. Yeah, if you use all of the 25 Go keywords in a program, I reckon, <laughs> yeah, I reckon you probably are. How often do you think about internal tooling? 
I'm talking about the back office apps, the tool the customer service team uses to access your databases, the S3 uploader you built last year for the marketing team, that quick Firebase admin panel that lets you monitor key KPIs, and maybe even the tool that your data science team had together so they can provide custom ad spend insights. Literally every line of business relies upon internal tooling, but if I'm being honest, I don't know many engineers out there who enjoy building internal tools, let alone getting them excited about maintaining or even supporting them. And this is where retool comes in. Companies like DoorDash, Brex, Plaid, and even Amazon, they use Retool to build internal tooling super fast. Retool gives you a point, click, drag and drop interface that makes it super simple to build these types of interfaces in hours, not days. Retool connects to any database or API, for example, to pull data from Postgres, just write a SQL query and drag and drop a table onto the canvas. And if you want to search across those fields, add a search input bar and update your query, save it, share it. It's too easy. Learn more and try it free at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. was a recent post about like the six stages or the stages of a Go programmer and it was the evolution in a small quippy like gist, uh, GitHub gist, which is basically this, you start out simple, but no, now I want to use all the features. And then you realize over time, you go back to the very beginning where you started. And then there was like another like cheeky Rob Pike homage without syntax highlighting or something. (laughs) But you know, I think, again, it's not just uh, programming or even Go, it's human nature that we want to be able to try to be clever. I mean, there's a reason why the word sophomoric exists, right? Oh, that's so sophomoric. It's when we're just starting to master a thing, but we're overdoing it, we're overcooking it. And you start to see time and time again, when you look at the masters, they have, I think there's the reason why the simplicity matters or simplicity is complicated from a person who's been, had to go through the hard knocks or some of the quotes that we hear time and again from uh, like Brian Kernigan, like if you are not smart enough to debug the code when you write write it, you won't be able to debug it later. So this is all part of the journey. And it's just like, there's just no way through it or a fast way through it. Like you have to let the learners just, you know, abuse some of these features and then come out the other end. Like I feel like it's like Danto's Inferno. Like you just got to go through that hell, go descend deeper and deeper and deeper, and then you'll come back out the other end. You'll be fine. <laughs> so can I ask a question, a question of the group? Have you joined uh, like, like a project like this could be joining a new company or just moving between team or just being assigned to a new, a new project and you thought, you know, ugh, this code, ugh, I, I need to rewrite this. Um, this is going to work great on, on radio, but like, like, like show of hands, who's, who's done that? <laughs> let, let, let the record show that I'm, I'm raising my hand, Johnny. Yeah put his hand back down. Um, I just felt, I, you know what? I, I internalized it like the imposter syndrome. Like maybe I'm not that good after all. Like maybe it's me, right? I didn't have the courage to be able to like sort of spread my elbows and have the confidence that what I knew was probably a good way or equally good way. Yeah, it definitely happened more for me in languages where there were more choices to be made. Mm-hmm. Having like 
go from to do all of that for us and take that decision away. Oh, okay. Kind of so removed, formatting. Yeah. So sometimes I think even just stylistically, but not just not just the style, but even like if it's if it's an OO programming language, the class hierarchies. You know, there's lots of different ways to slice that, and sometimes you'd think, oh, the, you know, there's there's a kind of clear abstraction here, and there's these a few weird abstractions that you can tell have got dust on them now. And yeah, of course, you just think now this this could be written so much better. That is that is what yeah. we always think, isn't it? The reason why I raised my hand sort of sheepishly was because I was like... I, I, like Coward? I, I've done... <laughs> no, we'll cut that out. Sure. Yeah, like, like I, I realize, I realize I, I've done this. So you do this enough time in projects, you realize sort of the, the, the ego that you're bringing to a project, right? Like you're, you're, it's almost like you're dismissing like months or years worth of people's mm. hard work and effort and re- requirements are never clear the first time around, right? So there's, there's so much you don't know, right, about a project before. And then here you are, you just show up and then like, oh, this is nonsense. I'm just going to rewrite the whole thing, you know, <laughs> over the weekend. Like the, the ego about that, it's just like, yeah. get over yourself, you know? Yeah. <laughs> this is fascinating. So I, I think as... We grow in our careers and put on some hat that some hat or some little lapel pin that says senior or something like that. Maybe we don't say it out loud anymore, but maybe we say it in our heads. But we're, we're a little more cognizant of, you know, okay, so code is written in a written in a time and a place. But can I ask you this question? Okay, so like that's that's the project you've been assigned. You've, you've got a group of humans you're working with. But what if what if it's like a library that someone comes along? Like you have a vendor library and you, you're asked to integrate with that. I'm not going to name any names, AWS. Like, <laughs> and, and you look at it and you're like, ugh, this doesn't look like any other code I've ever read, I've written in this language. And you might think, you know, and, and, and it's not just that kind of it looks weird, but like things that look strange, you think, well, well, if this breaks, I'm on the hook to fix it. Like I integrated this into my code base. I'm taking responsibility for this. Hmm. You know, wouldn't it, you know, kind of on balance be safer if I just wrote it myself? This is against the grain of being a software developer in 2020 when you can just NPM install, right? Like you're actually reading through every line of dependency that you're pulling in. So bravo to that, at least. I try to explain to my kids, like, what is it about programming? And I said, well, if you like writing, program isn't really writing because what you're doing is you're taking other people's paragraphs and you're putting it into your book from all over, right? And so sometimes you like, maybe you're, you know, Peter Brujan to talk about him, he once tweeted out like, my bash is like Hemingway. It's short, it's brief, it's clear. And I'm like, my bash is like Shakespeare, kind of obtuse and like, I don't know if people understand. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of people dying. That is is what you're criticizing, Dave, I think, when you're seeing these libraries. They probably work perfectly well, but they're just not you. They're not your voice. And that's like, there's a level of, um, I think, like, acceptance of pulling in, barring, like, bad, insecure code and monkey patching. Like, that's kind of what I tell my kids you have to live with when you program. Guilt is charged on, on all those counts, but the point I was trying to lead to was, was the one that I closed on um, in the Zen of Go, which is that maintainability counts. Like Peter's mm. wrote re- readability counts, and I, I've thought a lot about this over the last couple of years in, in, in the writing I've done and the talks that talks that I've done, and, and in my experiences uh, be, being a tech lead across a bunch of projects. Like the honest truth is that I've written Go for about five or six different companies, and I've left all of those companies. 
which means somebody else has to maintain this code after me. And I have felt anxious about that. Not as like, oh, is someone going to mess up my, my work? But literally, like, I'm leaving this debt for other people. And if, um, I, I've said a couple of times now, if code can't be maintained, either because there isn't, to, to give an example, the, the first code, Go code I wrote at Atlassian was rewritten after I left because I was the only Go programmer. It was reasonable that they, they rewrote it. But that's not a, a strategy for the growth of a language. Code that we leave behind as we move between jobs has to be maintainable. It has to be sustainable. And so to summarize the whole thing, like these are suggest as, as I wrote, these are suggestions for maintainable Go code that other people coming into the project are going to be able to understand and work with. And also code that you'd be happy to work on yourself. In a way, it is trying to find a way of explaining idiomatic Go without saying, don't do this, don't do that. Because um, idiomatic Go is, could, can also be quite positively absolutist in like, always do this, always do that. The real takeaway I want, I want from this is that for the success of our language, for the success of, of any project, it has to be maintainable. And that exists beyond any one individual. Yeah, it's, it's important even for yourself. You know, when we write code, we often think, how are we going to feel about this when we've forgotten about it next month and we come back to look at this? How obvious is it going to be then? It's obvious now because we're in the weeds. But once we've lost all that context and we look at this later when we eventually find there's something wrong with it, you know, how do we feel about it? And so when you think like that, like imagine that you're going to forget about this completely and come back in a month. If you think about writing it for that person, for those people instead, I feel like that helps a little bit rather than when you're in the weeds and you're writing it, everything is very clear because you've just spent hours kind of trying to figure it out. So you've got yeah. so much extra information that is, it's just in RAM. It's going to, it's going to go. It's not, you know, unless you can capture it somehow. Uh, you will lose it. So yeah, it's, it is important to think about that, even for yourself. I think the top line, like Google C++ group have a style guide. There's a version on the web and that the first item of that is write for the reader or something of that. Like obviously an idea that has infused, infused to go, which is that the, the act of writing is immaterial compared to the cost of, of reading tens or thousands of times. So write, it's probably like a, probably like a Kernigan or Strunk and White quote, like write for the reader. <laughs> Kyle Simmons and the Economy of Keystrokes, another wonderful talk. Um, he talks about the taxonomy of needs in the JavaScript world, which is, you know, how do we rank the needs? And the needs of the reader trump the needs of the writer, trump the needs of the maintainer, right? And he goes on to explain in that talk, like, some of these idioms that we have, what are they for, right? Is, is terseness really better if you can't read it? So I really love the... Um, the ideas coming out of that talk there are very similar to your words, Steve. To, to give a shout out to the author of Bitbar here, your ideas of um, <laughs> keep to the left, like, like return early, uh, the, our patterns of guard clauses and not putting successful code in, in, inside the indented block, it is totally speaks yeah. to, to for, for the reader. Yeah. Yeah, you've talked about blankability before, Matt, and I think this is a different flavor. It's a visual flavor of this very uh, topic. Yeah, it's that thing. I think you're right. It's just if if we if we think about a database and we're going to write some data and we want to mix it with some other things, we might choose to denormalize that, and that's a bit expensive at write time to do. But if there's so many reads happening on that, then of course it makes sense. So we it, when it's that world, we kind of it feels okay, it feels normal. But when it's code, 
I don't know that we think like that, and maybe we should, because, yeah, like you say, Dave, it gets read, if it's successful, it gets read a lot more times than it was written. Yeah. The one thing I I keep thinking about, though, um, as Go enters in uh, 2 million people and new people coming in all the time, most of those new people are coming in with previous ideas, previous assumptions, previous idioms, previous culture. And that is the thing when you ask questions like you show up to a company and do you want to rewrite everything? Or what do you do when you want to try to get to some sort of consensus about culture or idioms or whatnot? And so how does that clash when you either are getting a team to try go from another language or writing a a new service and it's traditionally been thought of as a Java shop or a Python shop. In the same way that an American is going to maybe make some faux pas in in another country, uh, what are the faux pas that you get when you come to go from other languages? That's like the $64,000 question. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is to to bring it back to where I think idiomatic, the the idea of idiomatic go, not particularly good teaching tool is because it's literally saying we don't do that around here. You're unfashionable. It looks weird. And and that equally applies to, I mean, to take take some examples, as Go was taking off inside, inside Canonical, many, many Python developers and almost to a person, the first comment was like, where are my list comprehensions? What is this rubbish? I have to write. I have to write a for loop like an animal. Yeah. But this is just the 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 start of the time. But it's it's important to say to, to note that statement. Like like at that point where this new program who's been put on a team and like I've been told I can't use Python on this. I have to use this other language. I'm already feeling a little bit anxious. And you're told this is just the way we do things around here. That's the wrong message to send. Hmm. Sounds like you're in a western, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It is very kind of put up or shut up kind of, kind yeah. of thing. And that's, that's not going to lead to success from anybody. Either people are resentful that I don't have the things that I liked from my uh, from other language or they're just confused or they're embarrassed. There's a whole lot of social pressure involved there of like I've been put on this team, I, I don't want to fail. And so I, I just dislike that whole notion of uh, the, the way that idiomatic go is pointing to what other people have done and like tapping the screen and say, make it look like this. Mm. It might be a very didactic teaching tool, but it's not, um, it's not very humanistic. Yeah. Another one of them on the list that I like is uh, leave concurrency to the caller. Mm. You know, this idea that you, you really want as a package author, you really do want to deliver this amazing package and especially if it's doing something and you know that it's going to be used in a concurrent way you really do want you it's it's so it's almost the fun bit isn't it it's the fun bit sometimes of the package and you have to maybe give that up for the sake of simplicity what are the other benefits of leaving concurrency to the caller why is that important to give um credit credit this is another one of peter peter bergon's fantastic um observations i'm probably forget forgetting other people who've contributed to this debate but it, you you're absolutely right that it is, if you're like, oh, I, I'm writing like a find function or a search function, like I can bring all the power of the computer to bear on this. I'm just going to start a few go routines. We're going to do this in parallel. And that, that's great. And you're like, that's the fun bit. I get to write the fun bit. I, I don't have to do the like, like API call, blah, 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 write the documentation. I get to do the fun bit. But the the difficulty that with that, and um, I'll, I'll give a link for the show notes, is Peter um, talked about, uh, in, in, I think he had a, a presentation GoFest, uh, the, the one that happens in San Francisco, called the, called the way I do things, which is about his his um, his experiences running Go, and one of them was this idea of it all comes down to not losing track of that Go routine you started. Part of it is like the very kind of dogmatic way I 
put it of, you know, make sure you know how that's going to fit. You know, if you start that go routine, make sure you know where it's going to finish. Like, sorry, that's probably not one of the better, the better ones on that list. Um, but Peter's, Peter's observation of that there needs to be some high level concept of keeping track of that go routine. If that's, if that go routine is one that is started and holds resources, you need to know when it's stopped because you might need those resources back. Like saying, how many times have you fought with tests that flaky because they're hitting kind of little residual parts of the previous test case that haven't quite shut down yet. That's the fundamental problem of currency. It's not that we can start and use it very effectively. It's that we have to know when it's all shut down and finished because if you want to do it again, you can't run over yourself um, with, with the previous instance. So to bring it back to leaving currency to the caller, one of the best ways to do that is unfortunately to give, uh, unfortunately for the author, is to give up the responsibility of who's going to start that routine to the caller, to somebody else, to provide them hooks, to, I mean, the easiest way to provide a hook for someone to run your function concurrently is just write a function. They can put in a routine if they want. So some of the ideas that the PID has are the, these more complex uh, notions of when we have kind of like like workers. You think, you think of the workers that rep- collectively represent providing a service, like an indexer and a searcher and a thing that accepts connections that kind of all conceptually live together as a group. You need a way of managing them as a group. So like go, go kits run package is some good ideas in there. I was going to say, yeah, one of the other things, if you do the concurrency inside your package, you know, it's in Go, it's very easy to make something concurrent. It's not very easy to do the other way around, to take concurrent code and uh, synchronize it, you know, especially if it's in running inside some package and there's other channels and things that exist that you don't have any access to. So that's another good point that people should remember is it's easy for people to make their own concurrency and then they know what's going on. They're responsible for it. It is just a shame. But I tell you uh, one trick, and I've actually had this very recently. Uh, one trick is to write a little example that does it. You still get to do it. You get to prove it. You still get to see it working. You know, you get the the fun bit, if that is a fun bit for you. But, uh, but it doesn't have to be part of the package API. It could be a, a, an example that ships alongside the project. I think the testable examples that we have that just fall out of Go test are kind of one of Go's undiscovered gems. There, there should be an example for every single API function. There isn't because basically the documentation, but like the, the power that they give to someone, someone reading Godoc, there's literally a piece of sample code that isn't just from a code comment. It's tested. It works with the example that you're seeing right there on the screen. It was, it was such a straightforward thing, such a simple thing, but incredibly powerful. I can't think of another another language like in the contemporaries that kind of has that baked in, just like not just in the documentation, but the integration through the test through the testing package and through the way that they're highlighted in Godoc is um, just kind of just a hidden gem. Hi there, this is John Calhoun, one of your GoTime panelists. When I'm not working on GoTime, I create programming courses that help developers level up their Go skills. And one of my more recent courses, Algorithms with Go, is live, and I wanted to invite you to check it out. So it's completely free, and in it we explore how algorithms and data structures work, as well as how to actually implement them in Go code. So if you've ever had an interest in learning about algorithms or data structures, or if you felt like you understand them conceptually but just couldn't nail down that coding part, this course is going to be great for you. We actually dive into coding everything, we work on practice problems, and it's a lot of fun. You can sign up completely free at algorithmswithgo.com slash go time, 
Again, that's algorithmswithgo.com slash go time. And don't forget that last slash go time bit. It helps me keep track of how you found out about the course so that go time gets credit for referring you. Thanks for listening. I would like to touch on the bit where if you think something is slow, right, prove it with a benchmark. That's actually one of my favorite features in in the language that you don't have to, you know, bring in third party tooling or anything like that to test the efficiency of your code. It's built into the language, right? So if it's built into the test framework. So if you think something is is slow, right, don't just eyeball it, (laughs) right? actually write the benchmarks right to actually prove it and then do the work right and to that point i think there's there's this sort of a um early on when i, when I first started doing go there was this sort of constant buzz around the community about oh go is fast go is fast but you have to know how to use go routines you have to know how to program it just right like there was this 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 constant sort of a murmur of like focus on pure performance. If this thing wasn't doing zero allocation, you know, speedy, like, you know, th- this was a time when we were coming out with an HTTP router every other week, you know, like this was a, t- a time, maybe we, this was a, a period where we had, we, we as a community had to sort of mature a little bit, you know, get to know the language and sort of grow as developers. And, and, but this whole notion that, oh, if it's not fast by some arbitrary measure, right, then you need to go back to the drawing board kind of thing. So yes, please do touch on that. Because to me, like Go already solves like a a vast majority of of the problems I have from a speed standpoint, like that I very rarely do I have to actually try to optimize like, you know, just one part of one area of my code. Maybe that's just me, but like, like I don't find myself constantly having to worry about optimizing my Go code. Yeah, so if you think it's slow, slow point. Cards on the table, that was a little bit of my opinion. Doing a, this occasional workshop on performance, there is, like, I come head, head first into that. It, this, is this the fastest it could possibly be mentality? And unsurprisingly, I have, I have opinions about that. The, the two things which I think are important in this discussion is that there is a continuum between readability, between maintainability, and performance. Does everyone uh, agree that to make the fastest possible code, sometimes the readability, the maintainability of the code has to suffer. And if the fundamental goal of, of, of this work is maintainability is the most important thing, then when you make that decision to de-optimize the readability of a code for performance, optimize performance by making it uh, harder, you know, more subtle, harder to maintain, and it doesn't necessarily need to be even like, you know, that code looks like crap on the page. It can be, this has very subtle invariants, like that can't ever be nil or that can only be set once or like, like very, very, very fragile things, which hurt more than just the readability, the maintainability. Because people like that code is very sensitive. There are some examples in the standard library where a function is split into two. So that the simple case, which is usually is inlineable, but the exceptional case is not very, very subtle code that like, if there wasn't a comment saying, don't move that line because literally it affects performance, (laughs) you would never know. So the other point I'm speaking to is dogma. Defer is slow. Always use atomic, never using mutex. Those absolutist statements which drive that kind of thinking. So how do we know when is the right time to invest in more subtle, harder to maintain code? Use the benchmarking tools that, that Go comes with. Don't optimize for... I'll give an example. In, in Go 114, 
defer um, a deferred mutex unlock is almost as fast as a non-deferred version. When I say almost on my machine, it was like 0.7 a nanosecond slower. So in the absolute view, you can say, oh, look, you know, that's still slower. But the point is that's an uncontended mutex. That's literally one go routine, taking the lock and putting it back. Once you have that atomic actually contended, it's the cache lines moving between CPUs. I can tell you that 0.7 of a nanosecond is not going to count. You're right. It's a good point as well, because as soon as you have a few things in your program interacting, then it get, things get very unpredictable very quickly. Way too quickly, in my opinion. But physics, I suppose. Yeah, that's another reason to prove it, isn't it? That's why you sort of say prove it, because actually you might be wrong and, and you might be really surprised by how your system or your code actually runs in the wild or even just at some kind of realistic scale. Yeah. And the one thing that I would say in terms of um, idiomatic go uh, is that it, you have to know when to also break the rules. And that's hard too, especially when you're a beginner. And when you talk about dogma, I mean, dogma, you can't have that when you, each release is fixing previous problems that you were dogmatic about. So defers is the perfect example with porn 14. Yeah. It's actually, it's, it's stressful as a beginner who's learning the, uh, the language, right? whether because you have to for work or out of desire to, you know, um, um, learn something new, learn a new language. It's frustrating to always be sort of second guessing yourself. Am I doing this right? Am I doing this in the idiomatic way? Right. Or is somebody more experienced than me going to look at this code and, and tell me like, the very thing that, you know, that Dave is, is sort of advocating, you know, again, before basically don't don't say, hey, we don't do things like this around here, right? So it's stressful, right? So to anybody out there who's learning Go, don't worry about whether it's idiomatic or not. Just learn, play, right? Like, fine, let somebody come in. Hopefully somebody will sort of say, hey, this, there's a better way to do this and they'll do it in sort of the, the nicer way rather than just saying, hey, this is not idiomatic and move on. But like, even if you have those detractors, that's okay. Just, you know, <laughs> there's no shortage of detractors, right? Just focus on actually just playing and learning. And the idiomatic part, that's just going to come. Like, I didn't come to a threshold, right, in my Go journey where, you know, I, I just walked through. I'm like, oh, yeah, now I'm writing idiomatic Go. That, that's, that's not an event. Yeah. It just, it just, <laughs> right? there's no, there's no market, there's no milestone there. Like, your, your code increasingly just becomes, you know, what we, you know, objectively can call idiomatic but there's no sort of official threshold so just play just learn yeah my sister is a university spanish professor so she teaches language just not a computer one and she's done it for over two decades now and she can pretty much predict who's gonna learn spanish and who's not by who's willing to get messy within the first mm. week mm. because learning is messy so what you just said johnny is exactly that just get messy do it wrong yeah, Brilliant. Brilliant. there you go. <laughs> Just like, yeah. One thing I, I think about the, the, the use of is that, like, initially it starts with well-meaning of like, hey, you're new here. Let me show you around. Let me show you the road. Let me show you where the coffee machine is. But at some point, it can also become gatekeeping. We only do it this way. We're not going to change. And that's, a, that's another important thing to realize that in any healthy community, like, in languages, the spoken languages and the use of computing languages evolves. That's like, think of meme speak. Like 20 years ago, no one said lol. That's a word that we just invented and it changes discourse. So the last kind of like to put the final nail in the pneumatic go coffin is that 
the last thing I want is for it to be gatekeeping. We've always done it like this. It should be totally right to question, quick, quick question, why do we always do it like this? Because we've always done it like that can never be an answer in a sustainable community. Well said. I think that's a really nice summary, summarization of the show, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it, looking at my watch, it's time for our regular slot for popular opinion. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you butchered that one up. <laughs> So, uh, who has an? Un- Does anyone have an unpopular opinion? It can't be about my timing this time. Dave, have you got one, please? Do I have an, an unpopular opinion? Well, <laughs> I've given you eleven. <laughs> <laughs> well, according oh, to the hacking news, yeah. you have. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a fun bunch! Oh. <laughs> Doesn't have to be about go. It could be about anything. Yeah, about anything. Here's your moment. So think about your day. Like think about the things that you've done in the day and and think about the things that have interrupted you during that day. Think about the things that have interrupted your focus. I mean, a lot of them are probably unavoidable. Like my dog just came downstairs or like like your family or there might be someone at the door. Um, But the the thing that occurs to me is that many of these interruptions are actually self-inflicted. Mobile phone notifications, pop-ups chat messages, the, the inevitable clamor of Slack. All of these things interrupt your focus. And the thing that it seems to me is that as knowledge workers, we have three skills. And in, in, in order that, the first one is our experience, like the experience that we, that we bring to our task. The second one is your ability to communicate. And the third one is your ability to focus. And like these are like in order of kind of difficulty and priority. Like experience, we can all just Google things. You, you, there are people you can talk to, you can, get it, you can get experience. Your ability to communicate kind of gates that. How well can you communicate? How well can you ask questions? How well can you formulate your thoughts? How well can you, can you convince other people to do things? But I think the most important one and the one that I struggle with the most is focus. Think, think of all the things that like, oh, I'm just going to like throughout my day, I'm just going to run that command. I'm just going to you know, pick up my phone and have a look at Twitter. I've deliberately let myself be interrupted. And as a group of knowledge of knowledge workers, and maybe this just applies to everyone, like your focus is your superpower. If you can't focus on anything, you can't get anything done. Mm. That's a great one, actually. I don't think that. I mean, I don't think that's going to be unpopular. Are you, I thought you were going to go on to say we're selling. So now you're selling Dave Cheney straight jackets for developers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think the unpopular thing is that there's a lot of things in this world which compete for uh, attention. Like, like no matter how much money you have in the world, you can't invent a 25th hour in the day. Hmm. so yeah. your attention is a commodity which is constantly being being competed with with and there, there are a lot of things that i think in the modern workplace actually are quite negative towards that like being always available via notifications and slack and chat and things like that yeah. it's not, not to say that chat is not fine or that uh group group chat is not fine but do you can you honestly say like like um, to, to the to, to the radio audience here can you honestly say that if you turned off your chat notifications for a day you wouldn't either A, feel guilty that you were ignoring, ignoring your coworkers, or B, feel a little bit worried that your boss thought you were slacking off. Yeah. Yet, how are we as programmers supposed to work if we cannot create any space to focus in? 
Yeah, this really uh, speaks volumes to me, Dave. And actually, um, I'm working on a new project that kind of is founded on those exact principles. And mm. I think it's dead right. You you wouldn't, if there was a room with 100, peop- 100 developers working in there, you wouldn't walk in and just shout, here, really loud, would you? Yeah, <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, that is, yeah, and that's what, um, that's what ha- is happening, isn't it? Like... Uh, on on slack and it is a cultural thing too you do because it's instant messaging you expect that instant reply yeah if um, you don't reply right away why didn't you yeah, yeah and you, you do feel like you're letting people down and, and then of course so then you do react immediately to get it out of the way so you can get back to focusing and then you've just sort of rewarded that behavior and reinforced yeah. it a little bit yeah so i'll ask anybody to just in the day-to-day work just be cognizant of if you Slack or Discord or IRC or in, in any chat system, this is not against any one of them, but do you reflexively alt-tab over to just check the window? Just check to see if there are any, um, oh. if, if there's anything you should respond to. Guilty. Because you're, you're, actively, you're actively destroying your ability to focus. And that's, that's kind of like, like if, if, if there's one thing that's going to determine who is more successful, the two, two individuals who is going to be more successful fundamentally, um, it is their ability to focus because that will preclude them from being effective enough as a communicator to reach out and get assistance from everybody. That will preclude them from being able to do any, any serious deep thinking because they're constantly either being interrupted by their circumstance or just have trained themselves to in, in, interrupt themselves. And so this was the challenge that I set for myself late last year. Any time that I will reflexively think to pick up my phone to check my phone, I'll pick up a book. So I always have a book with me and I try and read a page. I love reading Twitter when I get up. I love catching up, catching up with the world, just like I read the news, the news over breakfast. But I realize just how easy it is for myself to get distracted by it. Just mm. hold, it's just an old tab away. Um, or it's just li- literally sitting next to me because we have to have these damn things next to us for our yeah. 2FA tokens. I can't leave this downstairs. Otherwise, I can't <laughs> log in and do, and do work. Or if you're an on-call rotation, right? Like mm-hmm. you're just, Yeah. So ju- just think about how the circumstances have conspired to actively keep you to actively keep you in the in state of always being interruptible. Mm. How that fights against your um, ab- ability to focus. Uh, I, I think Nate, Nate, Nate Finch had a, a tweet a long time ago, ironically a tweet saying, "Well, if it, it, where, where are we supposed to focus in open plan offices?" There's my unpopular opinion. That's another Danto Inferno's hell. <laughs> Open plan offices are the, the real Danto, Dante's Inferno. <laughs> so all this interruption, we should, we should note that uh, um, you are excused um, from, from everything that we've just said about interruptions when you do join the GoTimeFM uh, Slack channel to participate and, and willingly choose to be interrupted uh, with our fun discussions. Yeah. So please do keep doing that. <laughs> yes. Well said. Yes, but I fear our time has come to an end uh, today. But Dave, thank you so much. Uh, anyone interested, check thank out the show me. notes. No, absolutely. It was a, it was a pleasure as, as always. Um, Indeed. Yeah, there's been some people say, someone said in the Slack channel, what's this Aussie talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's Barnaby said that. So <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? Um, Take it up with them. I, I, I barely know myself. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but no, it's been great, and I think that that is a, a lovely lesson as well that we should take away from this. Which is, if you do find yourself about to say something's not idiomatic, think instead about why we think that's idiomatic. Like, what are the positives? What are the pros for that? Talk about those ideas instead, and be open to people challenging that. I love that idea. I think we we should all actually 
spend a bit of time thinking about that. Let me leave everybody with a challenge. This was the challenge that I set myself. I became tech lead of this project um, that I've been working on at, at VMware for a while. As has happened in, in many jobs, as I've kind of been hired as like the only Go programmer that, that they can find, I'm kind of seen as like the expert. But I set myself, as tech lead, you're expected to review a lot of code, give guidance, things like that. But the rule I set for myself is that I was never allowed to say, never allowed to use this, just do it because, do it this way because, do it this way because, you know, I know better. Trust the experts, trust your father, like, like, like trust your betters, like, you'll understand. I said to myself, I was never allowed to use that excuse. And so, in a way, many of the things that I've been uh, writing and working and thinking on are trying to well if i can't if i can't use you know just do it this way because trust me as an excuse i have to be able to justify everything that i'm saying like thank you for this code review i I have some concerns about this api because because of this second the second parameter it doesn't seem to be used all the time and that means it's confusing for um someone uh, for, for for a newcomer like those are statements you have to say what you make when you don't let yourself say just do it this way trust me you know do it this way you're you're wrong effectively so the, the challenge the challenge I leave to everybody is to, um, when you're having a discourse with other people, when you're gi- giving feedback on code review, if you find yourself saying, you know, especially if you feel you're frustrated, like, oh, we've had this discussion hundreds of times, why can't you just do it the way that I said? Maybe it's because you haven't justified it, you haven't actually justified it. Like you, you, you're, le- you're leaning on your own um, your own history rather than ha- having the, the open discussion about, rather than saying do or don't, say, I think it would be better if, and, and those kind of statements. And so taking Scott Meyer's words to heart, never have those absolutes of, you know, say things like, you know, prefer this, you know, in general, in general prefer, or when you do make an exception, you talk about it. So um, that, that's a challenge I leave to everybody. Think about when you're talking about code with your, with your coworkers, don't just say, do it because. Say, I think that this would be better, and these are my reasons. Mm. Because it, it is a fundamentally your, your opinion at the end of the day. Um, but in, instead of making it kind of, uh, kind of kind of absolutist, you say, here are my suggestions. Do you agree? Well, challenge accepted, and I hope our other listeners do too. Dave, thank you so much. Please come back. And for everyone else, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Go Time. We appreciate you hanging out with us. Thanks again to Dave Cheney for joining the show. You can find links to the Zen of Go and Dave's other endeavors in the show notes at changelog.com slash gotime slash 122. This episode was hosted by Matt Ryer with Carmen Ando and Johnny Borsico. It was produced by Jared Santo. Hey, that's me. With music provided by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks to our awesome sponsors for supporting the show. You know Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar have our back. If you and your organization would benefit from speaking directly into the ear holes of all the gophers out there, consider sponsoring GoTime. Podcast advertising is very effective, especially when you know you're talking directly to your tribe. Plus, you get that warm and fuzzy feeling of supporting something you love. Head to changelog.com slash sponsor to learn more. We'd love to work with you. That's all for this week. We'll talk to you next time.
Hello. <coughs> That's a bad start. So sometimes, <laughs> kids, things don't go to plan. And that was one of those, just a little <laughs> cough at the exact wrong time. But don't worry, through the power of editing, this will definitely make it into the end thing. Yeah, it's definitely staying in, yeah. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> This is like a. This is going to be like a DVD extra for some reason. <laughs> you have to find. Yeah, we don't have many moments to use, but uh, little things like this. Someone coughs. That's gold. Get that. Get that on the DVD extra straight on. Okay, I'll, I'll do Dad, it again. Dad, what's a DVD extra? <laughs> oh, yeah. What's a DVD? <laughs> Dad, what's a DVD? <laughs> ah. okay. Oh yeah, I forgot the world's moved on. Hmm.